Hello, and welcome to Life Perspectives, an intergenerational podcast from Cumberland Lodge. Episodes will be presented by Cumberland Lodge Fellows, past and present, and shared during 2022 to mark the 75th anniversary of the Cumberland Lodge charity. Our second episode brings together Hannah Phillips, a Scottish PhD researcher at the University of Oxford, exploring policy frameworks of violence against women politicians, and Lord David Anderson of Ipswich, KBE QC, a crossbench peer from Brick Court Chambers, with experience of European affairs, who's previously served as the UK's independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. The conversation delves into lawmaking, influencing policy, public life, and the difference in gender experiences. Please note this episode includes some discussion of domestic abuse and violence. Further details can be found in the episode guide. I now hand you over to Hannah and Lord Anderson. Thank you so much, David, for taking part in this podcast, and we're looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Um, so as with all the episodes in this podcast series, we have some quickfire questions to start with. So the first question is, what were you doing at my age, which was 30? At the age of 30, I bought a house which you would consider disgustingly cheap. <laughs> in my professional life, I was fighting for the Spanish fishermen in a case called Factotame that established the supremacy of EU law over Acts of Parliament. Wow, that's very impressive. I feel uh, slightly unsuccessful. No, not at all, particularly with the house buying, because that seems so far away at the moment. The, ha- the house lasted longer than our membership of the EU. <laughs> Um, so second um, quick fire question is, who would you have wanted to interview in a similar intergenerational podcast when you were 30? Well, 1991 saw the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and it saw the end of apartheid. So I'd have to say either Mikhail Gorbachev or Nelson Mandela. Oh, wow. That, that would be both excellent, very interesting podcasts. Um, and the final um, quick fire question is, what is something that most people don't know about you? I was the co-promoter of a rugby trophy called the Old Alliance Trophy, which is presented to the winning team every time that Scotland play France uh, in the Six Nations Championship. Wow, very interesting. Well, now the world knows. So thank you so much. Well, we do both have roots in Scotland, and I think as well as that, we have something else in common, uh, which is the Globe Theatre. Yeah. Uh, I actually met my wife through the Globe Theatre okay. because uh, I took part in a in a debate to raise money for it when it was being built, and uh, to uh, accompany me to the Shakespearean ball that evening, uh, I took the girl who at the time I didn't know terribly well, but uh, to whom three weeks later I got engaged to be married. So. We have happy happy memories of the globe. What, what's your connection? Um, oh, that's really lovely to hear. I also have very happy um, memories from the globe. When I left secondary school, I worked in the education department. Globe Education have this fantastic program that I believe is still running um, in which they employ five 18-year-olds or people who have just left school to work um, in Globe Education for a year. And it was such a fantastic experience to be immersed in the globe theatre and be in that setting. So I'm very grateful um, for the goal. Still a very special place um, 
uh, for me. So yeah. Well, I, I I agree. Everyone should go to the Globe. But yes. you didn't stay in the arts, did you? You you found your way, I think, eventually into into politics. As strangely enough, um, did did I? Um, what was your journey? Um, yes, I'd be really interested to hear your journey as well. I think our journeys are slightly different from, I guess, from me from arts to politics and you from the law to politics. Obviously, all related fields. Um, but yes, yeah, so when I was working at the Globe, I thought that's what I wanted to do for my whole career, you know, work in the arts, particularly arts education. I'd really um, loved um, how arts could um, help young people grow in confidence and so on. But that's kind of what I thought I would want to do in my career. And I was getting interested in politics. So I had the opportunity to do some work experience in Scottish Parliament with Jack McConnell when I was still at school. And I also volunteered a little bit with him at the House of Lords. And we'll get on to the House of Lords later. Um, but I was getting interested in politics, but really thought it would be more of a hobby and an interest rather than a career. But then I had the amazing opportunity to study at Harvard University in the States. And Harvard, like a lot of US universities, has a liberal arts education. So I got the opportunity to take lots of different classes. But I actually really loved my government classes and particularly found US politics really fascinating. And then I was there in 2012 during an election year. And I thought since I was there, it could be a re really cool experience to be part of a political campaign. Again, just as an interest kind of for fun. And I worked, I volunteered on Elizabeth Warren's Senate campaign. And she's better known now for having run for president. But this was her very first Senate campaign. Um, and I volunteered in that campaign and I absolutely fell in love with the campaign environment. So then I went back to um, university my second year and declared my major in government and so I decided I wanted to study and work in politics. Um, and that year the Elizabeth Warren won and Obama won so all the candidates I had been supporting won and I thought this is great, politics is just really exciting, candidates win. But then I graduated in 2015 and I thought this will be an exciting time to work for the Labour Party you know, because it looked like Labour might win that election. But that's not quite what happened. So then I worked for various roles in the Labour Party, but mostly in opposition. And then I worked in local government, which was great. And that was really interesting to um, make change in a local way. And in some ways that felt more impactful because you could kind of see the impact right away. And then I wanted to you know, really kind of go back to academia a little bit and focus more specifically. So I did a course, um, Gender Policy and Inequalities at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And that was really interesting. And while I was doing my master's, I thought it might be quite an interesting opportunity to pivot slightly. So from my master's, I ended up working internationally at UN Women in New York, um, which was a different, different environment still political, obviously, in many ways. Um, so I did that for a while. And now I'm going to pivoted back to being in academia. But yeah, that's, I guess that's my journey from um, working at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre to now um, being Oxford via uh, House of Commons, local government and, and the UN. So it's been a, a bit of a, a bit of a journey in my 30 years. 
Well, I suppose like you, I, I was also interested in changing things, mm. whether that was out of a high-minded uh, desire to create a better world or just because I, I always found you know, policy and politics uh, interesting. I, I don't know. But I started off having left university thinking maybe I'll be a civil servant. Mm. I spent a couple of weeks at the Scottish office, as it was then called the Scottish government, um, and had one excellent experience and then an extremely depressing experience with uh, a poor man who'd been trying to get the Mental Health Scotland bill onto the statute book for years, and it had obviously driven him round the bend. So uh, in the end, I went for the law, and I loved the law. I loved European law. I loved human rights law. And I think in retrospect, that's partly because those areas of law are quite close to other things. They're close to business. um, They're close to economics. They're close to policy, and they're close to politics. I mentioned the Spanish fisherman's case, which uh, which was ended up actually overriding an, an act of the of the UK Parliament. So I suppose for me um, the uh, the route into politics it was much less democratic than 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 yours. I wasn't involved in campaigning. I've never been a member of a political party, but I've always been interested by by political issues and policy issues. So eventually, um, I was encouraged by other people to uh, apply to join the House of Lords, which I did by filling in a form, uh, enclosing a CV and six referees, and then submitting to a very curious uh, interview. And I was appointed to the House of Lords as a crossbench peer in July 2018. Uh, And since then, I've been sitting there when I can, um, debating all sorts of things, voting on all sorts of things, uh, trying to amend laws, trying to hold the government to account. That, in our rather strange version of democracy, uh, is, is where I've ended up. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing, and it's really interesting to hear like how you um, got there from working in the law. And as you say, it's related to politics and policy. All of these different sectors are um, related. And you've you've written about this, but I wonder if you can and you kind of referenced it um, when you were talking. But I wonder if you can talk a bit about your views of about how the House of Lords fits into modern democracy. And I I saw that you've recently been appointed to lead work to review the Constitution. So I don't know if you can also um, talk about that, or maybe you can't can at the moment. Well, the Constitution is is a mess. Um, the House of Lords, uh, nobody in their right minds would invent. Um, but I think you can contrast the inputs, if you like, from the outputs. If you look at the way the House of Lords is composed, I don't think any sensible person would defend it. I mean, you still have 92 hereditary peers who are actually the only elected peers because they are chosen by other hereditary peers uh, to take those seats. Every single one of them is a male because that's how inheritance works in this country. Uh, and although some of them actually bring a great deal to the work of the House, I don't think it's uh, justifiable as a, as a means of appointment. Uh, similarly, there are, there are 26 bishops the Church of England. Um, no one else, uh, no other religious leaders qualify as of right, although we do have um, a few others from, from other faiths uh, who are members. And then the political peers are appointed really by patronage. That that results in some very good um, former home secretaries and people of that sort of uh, calibre, but also notoriously it, it results in people who give big donations to political parties and, and that seems to make their way uh, easier. And then there's, we cross benches. We like to think we're sort of a cut above in terms of legitimacy, but I don't think we necessarily are. You know, we are also um, appointed after um, either on the nomination of the prime minister or because we've simply applied or someone else has, has applied on our behalf. So it's it's an odd way to compose uh, a legislative assembly. But if you look at what we do, uh, I think it's remarkable. Uh, we make 
between two and 3,000 amendments a year to bills that are passing through Parliament. And if you look at the expertise that is there and the uh, good sense of so many of these amendments, a lot of them not being political, but really quite technical in nature, it comes from people who've got perhaps a little more time um, to look at provisions which have been waived through the Commons uh, and who simply send them back to the Commons better than we received them in the first place. Sometimes we can be more ambitious and we can actually try and uh, add important bits uh, to a bill. So, for example, we had a domestic abuse bill going through Parliament uh, last year in 2021. Uh, I got involved with one aspect of that, which was a group of people who thought there ought to be a new criminal offence of non-fatal strangulation. Now, it is, of course, an offence already to strangle people, but particularly if no mark is left, it can be very difficult to persuade a jury that uh, this is an offence that causes actual bodily harm. Uh, And if it doesn't do that, then you're left with a very minor offence of common assault, which is really not enough to express the seriousness of uh, a practice which is used often as an instrument of coercive control in abusive relationships. So I teamed up with some medical people who knew a lot about the the actual damaging effects on the brain of repeated strangulation, uh, with some women's groups, um, with the Domestic Abuse Commissioner, with the Liberal Democrats who are particularly interested in this. And we assembled a big uh, coalition. In the end, managed to get the government interested. They could see uh, the sense in what we were proposing. They could probably also see there was some political benefit in, in doing it. So in the end, we in the House of Lords inserted this into the bill, and it is now part of the, the law of the country. That that was, uh, I suppose, in a, in a way, it was campaigning at a very rarefied sort of level. But what I really love about the work of the House of Lords is, is bringing people together in that way, or being part of a, a disparate group, people with lots of different uh, expertise, different passions, different preoccupations, uh, and somehow trying to make a, a majority of people who can see that this is a good idea uh, and trying to put put things like that into the law. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. And thank you particularly for um, your work on that particular bill. And I, I think I, I mentioned to you before that I've recently been appointed a trustee at Rights of Women, which is a charity that provides advice to women on a range of areas. And it's part of the women's sector. And they had worked in other parts of the domestic abuse bill. And as you mentioned, um, there's women's rights groups that worked on this particular amendment, including the Centre for Women's Justice, I believe. Um, and I think what's really key to what you said, and it's something I try and say to my peers who are not sure that they want to get involved in politics, is that it's not just politicians who can make political change. You know, the political process can and should involve lots of different kind of expert groups. Um, And I think it's really interesting what you have reflected on about the House of Lords, because that is one of the, one of the, I guess, arguments for keeping it is this idea that you have experts that um, can make amendments. I mean, I think there are other ways that experts um, could influence um, the the law and policy change. Um, But I think it's just really interesting to hear um, about your, uh, yeah, your reflections in the House of Lords and and making and making change. Um, I wonder uh, just if just, you just could before talk... you before you move on. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's an interesting. It's a sort of thing you only realise when you get older. But you mentioned the Centre for Women's Justice that was founded mm-hmm. by a woman called Harriet Wistridge. Now, I met Harriet when I was editor of my university newspaper at Oxford. Uh, actually, it's wow. before I was editor, but the the then editor um, um, ha- had the custom of printing photographs of half naked women on page three of the newspaper. 
We used to get them from Rupert Murdoch, who was a former business manager of the paper and used to let us have the discards that weren't printed in the sun. And uh, they had in the past been printed in the newspaper. We still had some of them pinned up in the editorial newsroom where most of the students working on it were male. And then one day our newsroom was occupied by 36 uh, militant feminists. They didn't have a leader. They were too democratic for that. But Harriet Wistrich was absolutely prominent in that uh, uh, in that move. Uh, and uh, they persuaded nearly every college in the university to disaffiliate from the newspaper on the basis of our of our foul sexism. Now, this was my introduction to feminism. I knew nothing about feminism before. Oh. I took over as editor. I was a clean skin. I took over as editor in the next term. And that was also then my introduction to advocacy, because if we couldn't persuade these colleges to reaffiliate to the newspaper, we wouldn't have had any readers. So I went around college after college uh, talking to them, trying to demonstrate we turned over a new leaf. We filled the paper with, uh, with features on, on uh, you know, women's refuges. Uh, we went to interview uh, somebody from the Playboy Club about how he was exploiting women and so on. We got many more women on board. Uh, now, I'm not saying this was done through any great idealism on my, on my part. I, I think it was you know, partly a question of the survival of the newspaper, but it certainly sparked something off in me. And life has an extraordinary way of catching up with itself. And uh, I was very touched and impressed to find that Harriet was there right at the center of this uh, women's justice movement. And it was wonderful in some very small way uh, to be able to work with her and achieve something in the real world, as, as I think we did last year. Wow, that is such an amazing story. How it, uh, um, how it all kind of circled round and came to you know being from university to um, Parliament. Oh, that's a really amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I wonder if um, when I am um, you know in thirty years' time there'll be people I've worked with or challenged or people who challenged me that then we work together on something. So that yeah, that's really uh, that's really a, a really amazing story. Thank you for sharing. It's one good reason to be nice to people. You know, you never know when you're going to meet them again. <laughs> that's very good advice, and I think that's just a very important as well in terms of um, our politics at the moment is um, to try and be um, civil, even if you're challenging people, but to be, um, you know, respectful and civil and so on. I think that's very important. So, shall we move on to talking about your your other your other parts of your um, public service? Um, so, as well as being in the House of Lords and being a lawyer, before d- directly before you were in the House of Lords, I believe you were um, the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit what that involves and how that is perhaps different to your work um, as a lawyer in chambers and different from being in the House of Lords. It's a very unusual job. Um, it's unusual because of a combination of factors. The first being complete independence. The second being you're given access to all the government secrets when it comes to terrorism. So uh, someone, it's usually a lawyer in practice, but someone is effectively taken off the, the streets, uh, given full security clearance and allowed to read anything and talk to anybody that, that, that they want. Uh, and, and then it's, it's about meeting people as well. You are there to uh, advise Parliament effectively on whether the counter-terrorism laws, which it is induced from time to time to pass, are the right laws um, to uh, counter the terrorist threat. It's important that somebody does that because uh, so much of that world operates in secret. 
most members of parliament don't have any security clearance. And so when they're told that MI5 finds it imperative to have this power or that power or the other power, um, it's hard for them to to calibrate that and to decide whether it's really something they, they ought to do. So what they really started saying right back in the 1970s when uh, counterterrorism laws started coming in in Great Britain to deal at that stage with the IRA was, okay, we'll, we'll pass these laws, but only on condition that we get some independent security clear person who can advise us on how they're being applied in practice. And my job was to, was to do that. Uh, it involved talking to everybody from you know, GCHQ, CIA, to, um, you know, ordinary people, you know, perhaps it would have been Irish people 30 years earlier, it tended to be Muslims when I was doing the job, you know, who felt they were getting stopped and searched a lot or humiliated by being questioned at airports and so on. And of course, I also spoke to terrorists, um, suspected terrorists, I used to go to the police cells to meet the people who'd been um, locked up on their return from Syria, um, or, or all that kind of thing. So the, the, the idea of the job really is to is to reassure people that the, the powers are being properly used, um, even if I couldn't explain to people uh, all the reasoning um, and all the details that I learned in the job. Um, but it was also to raise the alarm if in any respect uh, the powers were not being properly used or the powers were excessive. That's so interesting, as you say, quite an unusual, um, but important, or unusual and important role. What, what did you find most challenging? And what did you find most rewarding is the word I want to use, but perhaps what do you find most challenging and most impactful? I think what was challenging was learning to operate in the full glare of national, in some cases, international publicity. I remember the day that um, a man was arrested at Heathrow Airport carrying a lot of encrypted files that Edward Snowden had taken from the CIA. It was a Sunday in August and people started uh, asking me to do interviews because um, the person had been arrested under counterterrorism powers. And pretty soon this became a huge global story. And uh, suddenly I was there and, and one became conscious that, you know, anything you said in a TV interview or to a journalist, uh, if it wasn't quite right or if somebody perceived it as racist or whatever, th- there could be a pylon and, um, and uh, you had to defend yourself. And for a lawyer who had operated largely under the radar, sort of quietly going about the business of the courts, that was, uh, that was a lot to deal with. I remember I used to wake up every morning and turn on the radio and just say, I hope nothing has gone off. You know, I hope there hasn't been some appalling atrocity because I knew if I did, um, you know, everyone would, would want my views on, on this, that and the other. So, so that, was, uh, that was really hard. I think what was most rewarding about it was a sheer, sheer range of people I met uh, as a, a lawyer in sort of commercial type chambers in London. Uh, you know, most of the people you meet are, are wearing smart business attire and, and, you know, they have degrees similar to my own and probably quite similar ways of thinking to my own. And what was absolutely liberating about that job was the the ability to talk to so many types of people, including, of course, politicians. I used to report regularly to the to the Home Secretary. I'd I'd speak to the the shadow teams as well, and uh, that began to give me some inkling of, of of how politicians think, which is very different from how lawyers think. And that, in the end, was what uh, propelled me to make my application to the House of Lords. Oh, that's so interesting. Can you tell tell me more about? how you perceive the differences between how lawyers and politicians think? Lawyers live in a charmed world, which we don't always appreciate, because we live in a world where difficult issues are resolved on the appointed day, which is known well in advance, by people admirably qualified to make the arguments, by 
an extraordinarily rational and dispassionate decision maker. And if they turn out not to be sufficiently rational or dispassionate, then there is an appeal to an even more rational or dispassionate decision maker. It gives one a very um, benevolent feel for the fairness of the world, because that is the world in which we operate. In the world of politics, and indeed in most other people's worlds, it just isn't like that. Difficult issues suddenly hit you on a Sunday afternoon in August, and you weren't necessarily prepared to think about them. You you hadn't worked out a position and a counter position and a fallback position. Uh, Decision makers are not rational. Uh, At the end of the day, you are at the mercy of public opinion steered by an excitable uh, media, and uh, there is no right of appeal. You make an error and it's marked down on your record forever. So it's exhilarating. Uh, it's also terrifying. And uh, I, I, I only dabble really in, in, in politics. I'm not involved in party politics. I salute those lawyers who, who, who make the transition because they're, they're exchanging a, a pretty comfortable and prosperous life on the whole um, for a pretty uncertain one. That's so interesting about the, the differences. Um, and yeah, I think it's really interesting as well in terms of um, thinking about how change happens uh and that and i never really considered that before that uh, i guess what you're saying is and a lot of times in the legal world it's scheduled you like this is this is when the decision is going to get made but as you say um political change can be quite um unpredictable and the you know tides of change can come uh, you know from unusual sources in different ways <laughs> you say that you i'm just interested because you talk about how the uh, the legal world is you know more scheduled you felt quite benevolent and then you you decided that you wanted to go into uh, or wanted to apply for the house of lords after having this kind of experience of politicians what were the factors of uh, making that decision for you I think it was the I'd, I'd got a taste for for public life. I'd, I'd stuck my nose out of the tent, and uh, I quite liked it out there. And I wanted to spend more time out there. One of the thrilling things as independent reviewer was when I made a recommendation that was subsequently debated in Parliament, and you would hear noble lords or MPs or whoever it was uh, debating the pros and cons of, of what you'd suggested. I'd been asked, in particular on a cross-party basis to do a big report on what are called investigatory powers, effectively police and um, intelligence agency powers of surveillance. And I I suggested a big new law, which eventually became uh, an act of parliament. And to, to go through the to see that go through the political process was uniquely satisfying. I don't suppose anything else I propose uh, will ever become law on that scale, Um, but it was exhilarating and it made me want to do more. Amazing. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Just hearing about the difference because you 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 make change. You obviously have made lots of change as a lawyer, but it is a I guess a different mechanism for making change when you are a politician or working in politics. That's certainly true. The work of the reviewer concentrated a great deal on Al Qaeda and ISIS and other Islamist terrorist groups. But one thing I saw during my time was an increasing emphasis on extreme right-wing uh, terrorism. Indeed, one of my recommendations was that MI5 should treat that on the same basis as it treats Islamist and Northern Ireland-related terrorism, and it now does. It's become a, an MI5 responsibility. Mm-hmm. So it was while I was doing that job that uh, Joe Cox, female MP, was killed by a right-wing terrorist. Of course, more recently, we've seen David Amos uh, killed at a constituency surgery, and a third MP, Stephen Timms, uh, was stabbed by a constituent in a in a similar incident uh, about ten years ago. Though, though fortunately he he survived and continues to sit as an MP. Now your research, I know, 
uh, concentrates on violence against politicians, uh, I think particularly female politicians. What can you tell me about that? Um, yes, I mean, that's really, I think that's really interesting. And I think really um, valuable that you recommended and that that that's been taken up that um, domestic right wing terrorism is treated as such. Um, so I just to say thank you for that. Um, change that move um so my my i think a lot of phd students say this but i'm still in the early stages of my research um but very happy to talk about kind of my thinking at the moment so as you say i'm looking at violence against politicians and particularly um violence against women politicians and i'm one of the things i'm really interested in and this relates to what we were talking about earlier you mentioned um during the discussions about the domestic abuse bill ideas of not ideas, but how different um, forms of violence, there are different forms of violence. So now it's more understood that violence is not just physical, it can be coercive control and so on. And one of the forms of violence I'm interested in for my PhD is this online violence um, that we see. So for women MPs in particular, that's kind of rape threats and sexual harassment that they get on Twitter. And the um, what's really interesting and I guess terrifying about it is the kind of the volume of abuse that they get. So I've been looking through this in the past couple of weeks, been looking through parliamentary debates and how women and men and politicians have been talking about the abuse that they get in lots of different forms. And one of the um, aspects that keeps coming out is this. Um, the volume of abuse that um, MPs receive and that in some ways it's become kind of normal to look on a Twitter timeline if they've just got so much abuse. And I think that's really um, interesting and, as I say, quite terrifying. And my research in particular is interested about how this phenomenon of violence against politicians, particularly women politicians, is represented as a policy problem. So is it a problem, a kind of problem that needs to be addressed in terms of online regulation. And that's going to be quite interesting just now because we have the online harms bill going through, which I, I think you're involved in as well from the House of Lords perspective. Um, is it a policy problem that is for the parliament security and for uh, the police to deal with? Is it a policy problem that needs a kind of bigger culture change about how we um, you know, treat elected representatives and and treat people who are involved in politics. So I guess my research is really looking about how this is represented as a policy problem. And one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in the gendered aspect and looking at violence against women politicians in particular is that one of the, the kind of early research into this phenomenon, it seems that one of the impacts of this, I guess you can say, kind of increase and in maybe even normalization of this abuse is that there are lots of women and people from an under historically underrepresented backgrounds in politics who don't want to get involved in politics which you can see is quite rational I mean why would you want to get involved in a job which involves uh, you know being being abused online and so on um, and having the risk of um, having um, you know fatal attacks as well so and I think that's what's a really worrying impact is that there's been a lot of progress made to increase the diversity in politics and public life as a whole. Um, 
But if this violence kind of continues, there is a real kind of worry that those kind of progress, the progress made in increasing um, the diversity of representation might be stalled. And I think that's, that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I'm so um, interested in this topic. I can see that social media, for example, can make it easier to express violent and misogynistic views. But do you think the underlying problem is getting worse? Do you think misogyny is a worse problem than it has been in the past? Uh, and if so, is that is that a function of, of women finally, finally having arrived, finally controlling some of the levers of power? Uh, do you see this as a, as a backlash? Uh, and if so, what on earth do we do about it? Um, it's a really good question, and I think um, it's interesting in like academic literature and kind of in activist activism. There's kind of different views about whether this has been kind of kind of underlying misogyny has been there all along, and you know social media and so on makes it kind of easier for those views to be seen. And then I think I do think there is there is some degree of backlash. So because there's more women and women from kind of historically underrepresented groups and more diversity in politics and public life as a whole there is a degree of backlash and yes and I think uh, it's really hard to know exactly what to do I mean this is all, all policy recommendations are there needs to be a holistic approach which is true but I think um I think it really needs uh I think first the problem needs to be recognised and I think that's why I'm so interested kind of academically looking about how is the problem framed um, and I think okay, the first step is recognising that there is a problem and I think I think in some ways there seems to be recognition that there is a problem and one of one of the um, I guess weird silver linings of online abuse is it's so obvious you know it's not it's very obvious that this is happening so I think the first step is a recognition that there is a problem um, and I think obviously um, law has its place and criminal law has a really important place but I think there also needs to be kind of bigger culture change around around misogyny and these issues and that that means you know going into schools and talking about you know good relationships and so on um it means that workplaces need to really look at their diversity and inclusion policies and so on and so it really is there's a lot of things that need to happen there's no um silver bullet that's the phrase right there's no one thing that needs to happen um which do, do makes it um... Do you think there's insufficient acknowledgement that although this is sometimes presented as a woman's problem, it's actually a men's problem and a problem that men and boys really need to solve? Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I completely, completely agree. And I also think it's so it's something that men and boys need to solve, but it's also something that we need to, you know, think about how um, masculinity is should be reframed. You know, you know, boys will be boys and you know, boys don't cry. That's really harmful for boys and men as well. So it's not just about um, it's not just about helping women. But if we have a society that uh, in which there is not this, uh, you know, epidemic of violence against women, that will help. That will mean that everyone benefits. Um, so I think that's really important. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been such a great discussion. Um, I'm really interested to see how he sounds when we listen to it, but um, this has been so great. So thank you so much. 
If you'd like to keep up to date with Life Perspectives, you can follow us on major podcasting platforms. Just search for Cumberland Lodge. You can also keep up to date with all the work of Cumberland Lodge on Twitter, Facebook and on the Read, Watch, Listen page of cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Thank you once again to Hannah and Lord Anderson for joining us and thanks for listening. Goodbye.